Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today we're tackling perhaps one of the biggest questions in 2024. Will Donald Trump be successful in his bid to return to the White House? And if he is successful, are we in Europe ready? To help us answer this question, I'm joined by Kim Darrich, a former British diplomat and, notably, as some of you may remember, the British ambassador in Washington from 2016 to 2019, when he resigned following a leak of diplomatic cables in which he described the Trump administration as dysfunctional, clumsy and inept. In this month's Prospect magazine, we asked Mr Darach to tell us, with equal candour, what he thinks of Trump's chances today and of what a second Trump presidency would mean for the world. Kim Darach, former UK ambassador to the United States, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Hi, good to be here. So, first of all, Kim, Trump has won the Republican primary in Iowa. He's won Nevada. He's won New Hampshire. And he's he's even won South Carolina, which is, of course, the home state of his opponent, Nikki Haley. How likely is it that Trump's going to win the nomination and, and even the November election? Barring some black swan event, Helen, he's nailed on already for the, for the nomination. Um, everyone except Nikki Haley has effectively fallen out of the race. So, so it's almost a coronation now. Uh, and he beat Nikki Haley very comfortably in her home state. So on the face of it, there is nothing going to stop him if the nomination, except two things, as we know. First of all, there are all these legal troubles, which we can, we can discuss briefly. And second, if you're a Republican strategist, you'd be worried about something that is sort of hidden in all of these primary results, but was very evident in the South Carolina result, which is that he has three big weaknesses. Um, So-called independents, people who are neither member of neither the Republican or the Democrat party, um, are still going heavily against Trump. Uh, Moderates are, are going heavily against him. And he still struggles to get the sort of vote, uh, women's vote that he got, for example, in 2016. So one in five Republicans is not voting for him. They're voting for Nikki Haley, even though Nikki has no chance of winning the nomination. And that ought to worry them because Biden beat Trump 
badly on independents and moderates and particularly suburban women in 2020. And there's not much evidence from the primaries so far that Trump is getting those votes back. In the sense of the Republican competition, as you say, it, f- it feels very much like a done deal. But Nikki Haley is is still sort of hanging in there. Why hasn't she pulled out as you know conventionally she might have? I think it's because it's the sort of something might turn up theory of life. And she knows that Trump has these three big criminal cases pending before the Republican convention in, uh, in July. One of them, is, one of these trials is due to start in, in March. Another one in May, third one sometime before the convention, not absolutely clear yet. And um, I think if you look at those trials, I'd be surprised if he wasn't convicted in at least one of them. I mean, does anyone doubt that he ordered hush money paid to Stormy Daniels, number one? Does anyone doubt that he had vast stashes of highly classified documents, some of them in Mar-a-Lago? We've all seen the photographs. And does anyone doubt that he sort of incited the, uh, the 6th of January march on invasion of the Capitol? So it's hard to see how he actually doesn't get convicted on at least one of those. And although, of course, the Trump lawyers will appeal, so he won't think there's any chance he'll be in prison before the election in November. There are polls out there that say if he is convicted and sentenced in one of those trials, pending appeal, then uh, then maybe one in five Republicans might decide not to vote for him. Doesn't mean they'll vote for Biden, probably which means they wouldn't vote at all. But but um, if he loses that, it's very hard to see how he wins the how he wins the election. So I think Nikki Haley is waiting around, see what happens, and feeling that if he does drop out, or if you have a sort of contested convention, because he's by then convicted and sentenced, then she would regard herself as the one who has stuck the course and collected the most delegates, albeit from a strongly losing position, as next in line. So with those legal challenges, those criminal cases that are coming up for Trump, is the issue more one of voter opinion rather than sort of one of a technical one um, in terms of why it's a problem for, for Trump? Is it more that it will, as you say, turn people away than that there's anything that actually stops him from running? I think there's two things. Aaron. One is what you identify. Um, if the polls are right, then losing one in five of your potential voting base is really quite serious and it's quite hard. I mean, remember 2020, Biden beat him by six million in the popular vote. So if he's losing one in, in, one, in, uh, one in five of those who might vote for him, that's serious for him. But the second thing is, I mean, I just float this. I'm not sure I believe it. But there are those who question whether the Republican Party are really going to uh, put forward as their candidate for the general election runoff uh, a convicted criminal. I mean, that is quite an extraordinary thing to do. There's nothing in the Constitution that stops it. But they would be saying, as a party, we don't believe or trust the the American judicial system. We believe those trials were politically motivated and that the juries were were fixed and all Democrats were. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary thing for them to do. I don't say they won't do it, but that's something, I tell you. In your piece that you've written for this issue of Prospect, you, of course, 
noted that extraordinary is a word that's often used in relation to Trump, but it's it's quite it has been quite difficult to perhaps predict or analyze Trump because of his very unique brand. Um, do you think that's still the case or, you know, second time around, are we more used to Trump's techniques and what he's kind of capable of? Well, I think we're used to his techniques, but the evidence is they are still extraordinarily effective. He's sort of moved beyond mere politics. He's become this this kind of, and he is a global figure. I mean, most people around the world would recognize Donald Trump, but you can't say for every American, every American president. So um, he's kind of gone beyond politics. He's just become this, for the right, he's become this, this icon. And you see that effect in British politics with a number of British politicians sort of leaning towards Trump, although they still hesitate to, uh, most of them hesitate to say, you know, we want him to be president next time around. Um, and the evidence that accumulated, I would say, over his first term, was that he was not terribly effective at delivering on all of his promises and that he was impulsive and uh, unpredictable uh, and um, created a sense of constant chaos, which people found very wearying. But four years on from that, you might have guessed, honestly, on the 7th of January 2021, would anyone really have believed this man would be where he is, nailed on for the Republican Convention now? Um, it's extraordinary. If you looked at the midterms where all the Trump-backed candidates, he himself wasn't on the ballot sheet, but all the Trump-backed candidates did much, much worse than Republicans generally. So you might have taken that as a point of this guy's race is run. But we're wrong. He is out there. His base is as strong and solid and fanatical as ever. And they will walk through six snowdrifts to vote for him. And there are enough people around that base, um, uh, as the other Republican candidates fall out, um, who are going to prepare to vote for him just because they don't want a Democrat in the White House, to suggest that, yes, Trump's magic is still there. I mean, by the way, if you look at him and compare him to the person who was campaigning, he was an extraordinarily resilient campaigner in, in 2016, he is very definitely older, and uh, you know you can see the years have accumulated on him. He's not, I don't think, uh, the man that he was back then. Who is? But um, but it doesn't seem to have sapped his appeal. Do you predict that Biden might start to do better over the course of this year? His, as you say, there are um, many Republican voters who will just want the Democrats out, but there are also um, significant achievements at the Biden administration could talk about more related to the economy, related to the Inflation Reduction Act. Does any of that matter? My views on this, honestly, they, they shift almost from week to week. And at the end of last week, I met a prominent Democrat strategist and broker who's on one of the most senior committees in the Democrat Party and who will be a figure at their convention. And I mustn't name him, but he told me he thought there was a 40% chance, 40% chance that Biden would withdraw um, either just before or at the Democrat convention uh, in August. Uh, and you know, now that the Democrat primaries, you know, uh, he's piling up delegates, there's no serious competition. There's no sense in him doing it before then. The, the convention would be the moment or just before it to do it. And then you have what's called an open or contested convention. And all the potential candidates would basically have a week to make their case 
to the assembled uh, Democrat delegates and then a decision will be taken. It's happened before, happened in 1968, um, when uh, LBJ withdrew shortly before the convention, then it was going to go to Robert Kennedy and he got assassinated, and in the end Hubert Humphrey won a contested convention. So there's history there, you can do it. Um, so there is, I think, I, mean, I was really struck by the 40% figure, there is a chance it won't be Biden. If it is Biden, what he has going for him? Well, first of all, it's Trump turning off uh, voters, independents and moderates and women. Second, he's pumped four and a half trillion US dollars into the US economy. And I don't think you can put that much money in without some impact in some places. And so I think people will start, must already be starting to feel that and will feel it more um, over the course of this year. And third, the economy is just doing better. I mean, the last quarter growth was 3.3%, I think. Um, it may not be quite as high as that this quarter, but the US economy is way up outperforming European economies. Uh, the, the chairman of the, of the Federal Reserve has predicted two or maybe three interest rate reductions this year. So there's some good things going to happen in the US economy this year, and that can play into, into how people vote. If you think that the opinion polls say, Biden's biggest problems are the economy and his age. He can do nothing about his age, but you know, the economy can improve. And if it does, that may also sway a few votes. The idea that Biden could still withdraw is is quite an astonishing one. It was discussed earlier in the campaign, or you know, sort of six months ago is still a possibility. Um, many people will have felt that it's perhaps we'd passed that point. Do you have a sense of whether the possibility comes from the president himself? Um, as you say, is, is his age a factor or is this something that comes from from the party and the people around him? Part of this is sort of optimism bias or whatever you want to call wishful fulfillment. Be in no doubt, there's lots and lots of talk among senior Democrats about whether he really is the guy for, for November and about how bad it would be if Trump won. Um, and uh, there are some prominent Democrat journalists, columnists, uh, who have, like David Ignatius and Washington Post, like the New York Times as a whole, which are basically hinting they think Biden should withdraw. So there is there is a real debate going on about it. It's not it's not invented, um, but where it gets to, I don't know. Um, on who the other candidates might be, look, the front runners uh, would be. Gretchen Whitmer, who is governor of Michigan. And why her? Well, she is doing much better than most Democrats. Her polling figures are much higher um, uh, in the Midwest than most Democrats. So she has broader appeal than, than some Democrats there. And that's uh, and she's a very competent, competent governor. Uh, and then the other one is, um, is Gavin Newsom, who is governor of California. The problem with Cal- is, for California is most Americans, especially Midwesterners who are not Californians, think they're all crazy over there, and they <laughs> think that Newsom represents that craziness. So I think he has less broad appeal than Gretchen Whitmer would, but he's a very effective politician, and he's a good debater, and he absolutely looks the part, if you've seen the gross of him, and he certainly is interested, certainly is interested. And is the feeling within the Democratic Party as far as you know, that either of those candidates could beat um, could beat Donald Trump. 
Well, the opinion polls at the moment say the opposite. They say that Whitmer or Newsom would do less well against Trump than Biden does. But that's a meaningless poll at this stage of the race because they have very low recognition amongst Americans. Um, and you would need to get what would be the huge spectacle of a contested convention and then these people launching themselves into... I mean, remember, you'd still got all of September uh, and October for campaigning. Um, so a long time still to, to make your case to American people. Um, so uh, I wouldn't pay much attention to polls at the moment. But certainly if Biden wants evidence that he's the only one who can beat Trump, that's what the polls say at the moment. But I think they're meaningless. After the break, we'll talk about what a second Trump presidency would mean for Ukraine, Europe and the world. But first, I'd like to tell you about the upgraded digital experience you can enjoy with the new Prospect app. Stay informed and engaged with our independent journalism at your fingertips. Read or listen anywhere at any time. The app not only gives you access to our articles, but also includes audio narration plus podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Subscribe to Prospect and get instant access to the new app available on iOS and Android. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Droid. I wondered if we might turn to what a second Trump presidency would mean for America and then we'll come to kind of what it will mean for for Europe and for the rest of the world. So, I mean, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with some of some of the more outlandish comments Trump has recently made. Um, you know, his comments about being a dictator on day one, his comments about um, in relation to 16 week abortion ban, as well as everything we know about what happened on January the 6th. What would a Trump presidency mean for America domestically? Okay, I think it would mean the following. 
Number one, it means pretty much an abandonment of the green policies that, that Biden has introduced, especially through his Inflation Reduction Act, and a return to maximum exploitation of hydrocarbons, drilling for oil, drilling for gas, fracking, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, Trump, I mean, he, he's, he's not an open climate change denier, but he would take he took America out in his first term of the Paris climate change deal. He would do that again, uh, and he basically America first. It's all about the economy. Um, it's all about cheap energy. So he would reverse all of those green policies. Number one. Um, number two, uh, I think he would look for further tax cuts. The problem with tax cuts in the American system is they can never cut spending. So any tax cuts just add to the general burden of debt. But he had a big tax cut in his first term. He would try and do it again. And it's usually lent towards, it gives more help to, um, to the well-off and to corporations than it does to the less well-off. So you'd expect that uh, again. Third, he talks about the most extraordinary things about basically moving uh, a serious amount of the American army down to the southern border to patrol that border and keep uh, illegal immigrants out. Now, America has a crisis on the southern border in the same way that we have a sort of crisis on um, uh, in the Straits of Dover and um, European countries have this crisis. No country in the West has yet solved the problem of illegal migration. Legal migration, for that matter. Um, but Trump wants to use the army uh, and he wants to build his wall and so we'll have all of that again. And there will be a big, big focus on, uh, on migration, on stopping migration. Next thing, uh, he has these ideas about politicizing. I mean, top 1,400 jobs in the American system change when the president changes from Democrat, Republican, or vice versa. Uh, and all those people have to be appointed by uh, or confirmed by the Senate. Um, and then they take up their jobs. You normally have about a eight months to 12 month lag before these people get into office while we go through Senate approval. Trump wants the top 5,000 jobs to be political. So not just the top of each department, each part of government, but the next two or three levels down as well, because he believes in his first term, there were, quote, enemies of the people who were, who were basically disrupting and sabotaging his plans. He can do this. He can do it by presidential order. Um, it's a bigger job to try and get... Uh, 5,000 names through the Senate, but the Heritage Foundation apparently is vetting lots of candidates for all of these jobs, so he may well even have a list of you know, a few thousand names of people he wants to put in. And that would be a, a revolution, huge change. Um, so that's just three or four of the things that he wants, to, he wants to do. He also wants to go after people who he thinks crossed him in his first term. And there's some wild talk, I think it's wild talk about... Um, about indicting people who, um, uh, who he believes were against him. Um, whether that actually happens or not, I'm not sure. Do those last two points in particular represent a fundamental threat to American democracy? If it were Biden saying he wanted you know, more people who are politically on the, on the left, the top of American um, uh, government, um, people wouldn't think it was a fundamental threat to democracy. It's because it's Donald Trump, so it's kind of personality linked rather than rather than a general principle. The idea about going after, about revenge uh, action against people who he believed wronged in his first term, 
I think that's pretty anti-democratic. Um, and I think using the army on the southern border is pretty questionable. But you know, these, I make these comments from a distance. I mean, Americans will have different views. Some of them regard the, these things as perfectly logical things to do to address the crises they think are addressing the nation. Some people will think it's, uh, it's dismantling democracy. Of course, from, from over here in London, as you say, at a distance, um, the possibility of a Trump presidency is also um, interesting in how it would transform the transatlantic relationship and how it would transform the security picture here in Europe. I mean, on that kind of British-American question, what would a Trump-Starmer relationship look like, do you think, if... Labour were to win the next general election in the UK and Trump was to be successful in his bid for the White House? I don't think Trump is a sentimentalist about the special relationship. And uh, I don't think it really matters in terms of his policies and his behaviour towards us, whether it doesn't matter massively whether there's a Conservative or Labour government um, in, uh, uh, in power in, in Westminster. If you look at the first term, there was a Conservative government throughout the first term it didn't stop Trump imposing sanctions on, not sanctions, uh, tariffs on exports of British steel and aluminium. It didn't give the UK any, any kind of special in uh, or privileged position uh, in terms of, of, um, of Trump policies. It didn't stop him being very critical of, uh, of NATO and of, of the EU when we were still in it and so on. So um, I don't... I don't think it matters particularly whether it's whether it's Starmer or um, or still Sunak as prime minister. Um, I think that Starmer has said he would have to he would try to make it work as well as possible, and that's the only thing you can say. That's the only thing you can say. And where you would find the sort of pinch points are in first of all, Trump has plans on trade to impose a ten percent tariff on all export imports to America from everywhere. Uh, also, 60% tariff on imports from China, but all imports are everywhere. And you can guarantee in those circumstances the EU would retaliate with some tariffs on the US. And what are we going to do in those circumstances? We have uh, British exports to the US would be would be labelling would be under this tariff, but um, uh, would we join the EU in retaliating, or would we try and uh, get some special deal? Uh, I wonder. I don't think a special deal would would be available to us. Otherwise, um, I think that the defence, security, intelligence relationship would be as strong as ever, just because that carries on really whoever is in the White House or in Number Ten. Um, but I think trade would be difficult, economic relations would be difficult, and of course, if Trump um, was very negative and disparaging on NATO, uh, and if he, as he says he will, stopped U.S. military support for Ukraine, that affects us almost why we feel we should have a vote in the US elections, because those kind of policies have a profound effect on our own security. Yeah, I mean, Trump's statements on NATO, as you say, um, saying that he would urge uh, Russia to invade any NATO country that didn't, quote, pay its bills, i.e. contribute 2% of GDP uh, to NATO, has, you know, shaken a lot of people in the security landscape in, in Europe. Do you think that Europeans, including... Are, yeah, ourselves in, in Britain are adequately prepared for the fact that in 250 days you could have a US president who has more or less opted out of um, the Article 5 commitments? 
Yeah, I don't think we are adequately prepared, but it's hard to know what private discussions are going on in Brussels in NATO headquarters. But um, I'd say this about, about Trump's views on NATO. He said various times uh, in the White House, and it leaked out that he wanted to take America out of NATO during his first term, but the Republican Party would never have let him do that. The Senate now passed legislation, passed in December 23, saying any move to withdraw from NATO would require Senate approval. You wouldn't get Senate approval, I don't think, unless there was some massive Republican landslide there, which I don't think will happen. So in terms of leaving NATO, I don't think Trump can do that. Um, but as you've, as you've said, if he disavows Article 5, the principle of collective defence, that is in itself massively destructive to NATO uh, and undermines the alliance you know, totally. I mean, I think in the end, I think in the end that uh, you would find in the Trump presidency a succession of European leaders going across to Washington for their first meetings with him and pointing out that NATO is much, much better than it was in 2016 when he last took office in terms of defence spending. Something like 18 to 20 NATO member states will be spending 2% of GDP by the end of this year, and it was only four or five when Trump took office in 2016. So the message to get across to Trump is that he's won on this, um, that NATO has done, European members of NATO have done what he asked, or many of them have. Um, of course, there'll still be close to 20, close to 10 who haven't got 2%. Um, but you would try and tell Trump that he should claim his triumph uh, at the first NATO summit he attends as president. And meanwhile, everyone will pressure the countries not at 2% to get there so he can have a complete triumph by the end of his presidency. So, I mean, since that doesn't need a huge amount of, of sort of planning, what would need planning would be if he actually carried through with with um, uh, some of his comments about NATO and continued publicly to disavow Article 5 and withdrew you know, US support for Ukraine, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you would need the, the Europeans getting together quickly and thinking about what a NATO, uh, which is basically based around the Europeans, then looks like um, and whether we can collectively backfill for the loss of American support for Ukraine. And I suspect there are very private conversations going on about that, not formally, but informally in the corridors of NATO and thinking going on in, in European capitals. But um, the first hope would be that Trump can be dissuaded from some of the things he's saying on the campaign trail. We've talked before on this podcast with um, with the likes of the historian Timothy Garton-Ash about um, how important American support is for for Ukraine, which is, of course, connected to the NATO question, but because Ukraine is not part of NATO, also slightly different. There aren't currently signs that Trump would um, support the kind of military aid, military support that Ukraine needs. Biden is also finding that challenging. Is there anything that Biden could do between now and the election to kind of sure up what America can give, given that there's a risk after the election, everything is withdrawn or um, at least much reduced. If you could get congressional approval to get a package of aid through to Ukraine, which at the moment he can't, but they are still working on it, I think, and I imagine it is conceived. I mean, the crazy thing here is there's actually a majority in both houses for military aid to Ukraine. 
Uh, it's blocked because the Republicans have such a narrow majority in the House and a few on the on the far right of the Republican Party are blocking it so you can't get it through and they're not putting it on the agenda. But the reality is there is a majority there. So if you can somehow maneuver that through, then I would say, um, you know, he's talking, I think they're talking about a 50 billion package. The important thing is to get all of that in terms of hardware to Ukraine in the course of this year. So they've got some stockpiles of stuff. You might stockpile it in, in, in uh, a NATO country in Europe rather than actually in Ukraine or whatever. But anyway, get it all there. And then uh, they've got some, some stuff uh, which will take them through the year and maybe through next winter. And meanwhile, the Europeans, who are trying at the moment to raise their capability, their capacity to produce stuff, uh, may be able to do more by, by next year in a few months' time. So it's about getting the stuff across the Atlantic um, into Europe. We probably can't leave this conversation without talking about one of the other great diplomatic challenges that um, British leaders and any forthcoming American president would face, which is, of course, um, the situation in Israel and Gaza. What's your sense of how Trump would approach relations with Israel resolving this um, immense conflict and humanitarian crisis in the Middle East, if it were, unfortunately, still to be um, continuing into the autumn? Well, we very much have to very much hope it won't be continuing because uh, just think of the death and destruction and civilian casualties if it is going on uh, for the rest of this year. But look at Trump's record in his first term. Um, he recognised Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and, and moved the... Um, uh, the American embassy to, to Jerusalem. Um, he recognized Israeli sovereignty over, over the Golan Heights and over Jerusalem. Um, he basically broke relations with the Palestinian Authority, he stopped American funding for, for aid for Palestine, um, and uh, was basically the most pro-Israeli prime minister, uh, president of America in history. And my view is that, that if he gets into office again, um, he will... He will continue to be very strongly pro-Israel. He will not put the pressure on Netanyahu that Biden is to stop the ground operation in Gaza, to uh, start reconstruction there, to recognize a new Palestinian leadership and to start a process on a two-state solution. I'm not sure Trump will do any of those things. Um, the one thing he would do is put some pressure on, on Saudi Arabia, I think, to join the Abraham Accords, which were negotiated towards the end of his first term. And given he has very close relations with, with uh, the Saudi leadership, with, with MBZ, that might ha MBS, that might happen. But, um, but beyond that, I don't see the pressure, inter him, him needing the international pressure in the way Biden is uh, to find a permanent solution uh, with, with, a, with, a, with a Palestinian state. Just one final question. So I think for many of us looking at the year ahead, considering the possibility of a Trump presidency, we wonder whether if he was successful, America would be changed and the world would be changed in a in a very deep way. Do you share that that concern really? Or do you think that a president is um is present for a short period of time, but that there are institutions around around the president that um, mean the world order continues as it was? 
Yeah, it's a very good question, a difficult question. I just remember Barack Obama saying that um, America could survive one term of a Trump presidency, but not two terms. Um, and I look at the rise of the populist right around the world and look at their strength now in, in European countries, Hungary, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, um, the, uh, the, the right-wing in power in, um, in Italy, um, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, the rise of, of, of um, Front National. It feels like a real movement globally now, especially in Europe. And certainly if Trump wins a second term, he would provide uh, leadership as a kind of you know, global figure for that and maybe encourage more of it. So there's that out there. People have, you know, have the right to vote for who they want to vote for. And it is much a statement about the failure of sort of liberal governments um, over the last decade or so as it is. You, know, you can't criticize people for how they vote. They vote with how they, they, they judge things and what their interests are, and liberal democracies seem to be failing them. Um, then you look at the post-war international order, big international institutions, United Nations, the IMF, uh, the World Trade Organization, and so on. Trump doesn't basically believe in any of them. They're already all struggling. Some would say they're on life support and American disengagement. And remember, there's a history of American isolationism and disengagement at various points in the past. If that happens again, then whether those institutions and those structures, which I think have served us well since the Second World War, whether they can survive is a real question. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Kim Darragh, for joining, um, for talking us through the possibility of a Trump nomination, a Trump presidency and the implications for, for the West. So thank you very much for joining and indeed for writing that excellent essay that's currently out in Prospect magazine. Thank you very much. That's all for now. Thanks so much to Kim for joining us. And thanks to our listeners at home for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to our website at prospectmagazine.co.uk where you can read Kim's essay in which he unpacks more of what we've spoken about today. If you're interested in solutions to collective problems, then you might also want to check out Samira Shackle's report on whether giving homeless people cash is the best way to help them help themselves. Plus, two of our Prospect Lives columnists, 91-year-old Sheila Hancock and 24-year-old Alice Garnett, came down to our newsroom to talk about intergenerational justice and whether Gen Z, millennials, boomers or the silent generation have really had it harder. This episode couldn't be made without assistant editor Sarah Collins and producer Martin Points-Roberts. Goodbye for now and hope you join us next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.